0: Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good for others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, tomorrow's Christmas, right? No? Christmas Eve. Gotcha. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. Uh, we're excited. We had a family camp out in front of the Christmas tree last night. I lasted just until the kids fell asleep because I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, have a full-time job. I don't sleep on the floor. You know what I mean? Um, so that was fun. We're excited. Uh, we have Christmas Eve services tomorrow. 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. The 4 p.m. service, uh, Pastor Lachlan and his wife will do their annual Who Knows Christmas Wonderland Kids Sermon event. So if, you, if you're a child or if you have a child and want to come to that, that's usually a ton of fun. They do a great job. We gather all the kids up and you can take pictures and stuff. That's at 4 p.m. 11 p.m. is going to be more of the traditional uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service. So we'll sing Silent Night, turn all the lights down, light candles. It, it's usually pretty wonderful. Uh, also... We've got a few days left for year-end giving. Uh, what is it? What is today? 23rd? So you've got like a week left. And remember, we're, we're trying to fix this roof and send some teams over to our full-time missionaries overseas. So if you want to contribute to that, you've got a few days left. You can do it on the app. You can write a check and put Sojourn uh, Year-End Giving, New Albany Year-End Giving in the memo line. Um, the app's probably the easiest way. But if you're planning on doing that... You've got a few days left to do that, and then today is your last day to get any of our books that we uh, recommended from the Galatians series. Because and you can cry if you have to. This is our last Sunday in Galatians. We've made it. We've run the race. And so, at the book table are all the books we have left on Galatians. There's a couple of Eugene Peterson's book, which is kind of more reflections on the book of Galatians, and it, it can be tricky to find. It's gone out of um, stock a few times on Amazon and stuff like that. So, if you want those, they are on the book table. Today's your last Sunday to get them. Um, We'll start in the new year by answering the question, what is God's will for my life? Anybody ever wonder about that? It's like the question, right? What's God's plan for my life? And we're going to tell you. We'll tell you precisely what it is, and then the week after that, we'll tell you how you can walk in that for the rest of your life. So those should be two good weeks. And then the end of January, we're starting um, a long walk through the book of Matthew. All, all total, we'll be spending about two and a half years in the book of Matthew. And through that, there'll be some chunks where we hop into the Old Testament and get some of the background into what Matthew's alluding to, what are some of these ideas of fulfillment and prophecy happening in Matthew. So we'll be going you know, to the minor prophets over the summer and, and hopping around. So it won't be straight through Matthew, but the big umbrella of we're talking about the book of Matthew will be there for just about two and a half years. Uh, and the first two chapters of Matthew... We're going to talk specifically about family drama. And some of you are already ready for family drama, right? Because in-laws are coming into town tonight? Tomorrow? I don't know, it's Christmas? Uh, So if you've never thought about it, or maybe you missed our Mothers of Jesus series last year where we talked about some of this, uh, you know, Jesus was born to a virgin who was a teenager who wasn't exactly married when she got pregnant. So there's scandal there. And you, you know where she was born, right? You know the songs and the stories. It wasn't even a home birth, right? It was like a barn birth or something. There's no hospital. It wasn't ideal circumstances. And then Jesus's early days were spent running from the law, right? A, a crazy king wanted to kill him. And then he lived as a refugee for the first 12 years of his life. And, and so we're going to look at the first two chapters of Matthew and what can we learn from Jesus's messy family to help make sense of ours and see that God is holding all of our stories. So I hope you come to that. If you, if you got family drama and know someone who does, I would encourage you to bring them along. Start this, so this will be the end of January. Uh, this morning, Paul is offering us, I think in essence, a summary. Uh, he boils down the life of freedom to one reality. And in essence, he says, it's the cross of Christ. So it's the one thing that you got to know, you got to experience to maintain this life of freedom. And he says, it's the cross of Christ. And and so we're going to spend most of our time talking about what is the cross of Christ? What does that mean? uh, What does that do to us? But there's a few things on the front end that just, man, they were like blinking red lights for me as I was soaking in this text for a little bit. Um, So really since chapter three, Paul has been talking about these teachers that came in and were trying to convince Christians that they had to follow the law of Moses. And that began with circumcision. And from there, you have to go and do all of these things. So like, yeah, it's good that Jesus saved me, but now to really make it count or to really make God proud or to do the things that I'm supposed to do, here's all of these hundreds and hundreds of rules that I need to follow. Paul's been talking about this tension. And so in verse 12 and 13, he starts getting to their motivations, He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. So two big motivations here. Uh, One, we see uh, they they want to look good to others. That comes from a place of shame, right? Something about who I am isn't enough, so I want to look better to everybody else. I'm going to get into the image management game. One is a little more fear-based. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching the cross of Christ. They don't want to Uh, teach something that would get them criticized or would make them unpopular. So one coming from shame, the other coming from fear. Then in verse 13, even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. So they're, they're aware of their own hypocrisy. They have a standard that they're asking other people to meet that they themselves can't meet. So how will they deal with their own feelings of guilt or inconsistencies? Well, if I get a big enough crowd behind me, if I can get enough followers, then that will prove to everyone else that I've done a good job. So there's some flavor of guilt happening here. What I'm doing isn't enough, and if I do this, then it'll overcome that. It'll compensate for that. I'll get this huge crowd around me. So in each of these motivations... So again, shame. I'm going to make myself look good. Fear. I'm going to just keep the status quo so no one persecutes me. Guilt. I'm going to do something great to overcome what I've done. There's a denial of the the true gospel happening in each one of these, and in in pursuit of some kind of freedom, right? I don't want to look bad. I want the freedom of looking good, so I'm going to go down this way. In their own pursuit of freedom, they're keeping themselves enslaved. And this is what sin does. It, It flips us upside down, and it actually keeps us from getting the things that we want. Um, the word that came to mind as I was reading and thinking about these guys is the word reactive. Um, and Reactivity is this kind of posture of soul uh, where you're living in response to the world around you, to the people around you. Their, their lives are a response to people around them. So they aren't free. They're slaves to the opinions and evaluations of others. And I, I think reactive may be the essential posture of the enslaved soul. So you can't live honestly as who you are, who, who has God made you to be, what gifts has he given you, what part of the body has he called you to play. You can't do that when your life is based on what everyone else thinks about you. You see? If, if I'm living based on will you guys think I'm doing a good job or will you guys think I'm doing a bad job, you're not free. If you're constantly trying to manage your own image, so we react in response to what other people do. Reactivity is like an it's like an open wound on the soul or a broken bone that hasn't been set yet. Maybe you, you know, think about a time you you fell off your bike and and skinned your knee, or maybe you had a bone broken and you you had to ride in a car on the way to the hospital where when that wound isn't right, when it's either open or the bone is out of place, even the gentlest touch can set it on fire, right? Like a normal car ride, and all of a sudden you can barely hold your arm straight. It, It hurts so bad. And so the reactive soul is one that reacts like an eight out of a 10 when the offense was a one out of 10, you know, even a gentle touch makes it go, just blow out of proportion. So think about your own life for a second. How often are your words and your mood affected by your circumstance? So you did something disproportionate or you found yourself ever wondering like, why did I get so angry there? it would be funnier if it it wasn't, True for me, because I hear these things all the time. Well, I wouldn't have said that if she didn't say this to me first. Have you ever noticed how we have a way to blame shift our own sin and failures? Well, yeah, what I said was maybe it was technically wrong, but if they hadn't done this to me, I wouldn't have done that to them. Yeah, I would work hard at my job if my boss wasn't such a. "Mm -hmm," Then you say things we don't say at church, right? Like, I would work harder if if everyone else on my team wasn't such idiots. I mean. So many of us get into these situations and we talk like little children that are arguing with their parents saying, she hit me first, he hit me first. Yeah, what I did was wrong, but I did it in response to what they did to me. And you, you see that reactivity, how much of our lives is spent lived in response to what other people say, do, or how we think they're seeing us. Reactivity is an inability to be free from old wounds. So we react. Maybe something legitimate happened to us and we've left it unattended and so it festers and that wound gets worse and it gets infected and it takes less and less and less to inflame that open sore in our souls. Some of you may, uh, if you've been with us through most of Galatians, you may remember a few weeks ago, I uncomfortably made you consider what you would do if you weren't afraid of failing. And we gave everybody a little blank note card and we were hoping like five or 10 people would fill it out. And at one point in the sermon, we said, what would you do if you weren't afraid to fail? And we got over a hundred responses and we put them up in this Excel spreadsheet so we could pray over them, ask God, what are you leading us to in this? And I I wanted to put a few of them, and these aren't like the all-stars. This was like the first page and let's grab five or six of them. It's a small sampling of the kinds of things that people said. And, And I want to share with you some of the responses that we received. So I would proclaim the gospel to others. I would witness and share the word of God. I would witness to my parents. This was a huge theme. The number of people saying, I would talk about Jesus to other people who don't know Jesus. We'd hear this over and over. I would dream, but I don't want to dream because past dreams have not come into fruition. I would have a large family of adopted children. I would start my own business. I would have another baby. I would meet my neighbors. I would talk to my parents. I would adopt. I would talk to my dad. And so you, you see, these aren't small things that we're afraid of, or insignificant things that we're dealing with, and as you hear these, I mean, you can, it's amazing how much can be communicated in, in three words like I would adopt. Three words, have another baby. And you can feel the wounds here. You can feel the hurt. This is a small, small portion of the kinds of things that were shared. Then, I think what makes it more difficult is how incredibly complicated life is. And these situations are complicated. And I don't, again, these, I don't know who wrote what. Maybe you have a really good reason for not talking to your dad and it would be really unhealthy for you to talk to your dad. Like, I, don't, I don't know the right answer in every one of these situations. The life of freedom, as we've seen for months now, is complicated. So the roads that we take in our lives what we do, what we don't do. There are many different roads that we will go down. But what Paul is saying here is that the life of freedom always begins at the same place. The the way we turn from that reactivity and find healing for our wounds and freedom always begins at the same place. And so in verse 14, he says, says for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any road to freedom always begins at the cross of Christ. When, when you see boast here, think of trust that produces confidence. It's less like some bragging. It's, it's a declaration of, of what you're trusting, what you're hoping in, and how that grounds you and gives you confidence. It's the kind of boasting about where you look to deal with uh, fear, shame, or guilt. That's what this boasting is. Where are you looking to to deal with those realities in your soul, it has to do with where you look to confidently act in your life and not, not react based on what everyone else tells you. It's the place that helps you say, Who am I? What part of the body am I meant to play? And how do I know I can play it? If you want to know what you boast in functionally, you need to ask yourself, What do you trust to secure your confidence in who you are and where you're going? Where do you look to answer, who am I? What am I? Where am I? Paul, he's been saying it for chapters now. Your rule keeping won't work. If if you want to say, look at all these good religious things I do, that will never be enough for you. That boasting won't satisfy. There's no amount of image management that will work. Only the cross of Christ is deep enough and wide enough and powerful enough to both hold all that we are and to set us free. And so Paul explains what this means for us. Uh, how does it do this? He says, um, because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. This, it's kind of like a timeshare, like your interest in a timeshare. What this is saying is like the world's claim on you has been executed. The world's ability to say, live life this way, do this this way, has been executed. The voice of the world demanding me, demanding you to live in slavery has died. First, because the cross announces to the world before God and all of creation the very thing that you try to hide. So in the image management game, you hide who you really are. You think there's something essentially wrong with you and somehow you figure out what the world around you wants to see out of you and you learn to play that and you learn to be that. You put makeup on your soul and you live with a mask on. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you're the kind of person that's in your 40s or 50s and you have nothing but superficial relationships. You're not close to anyone. No one knows you. You don't know how to know anyone else. Questions like, what are you good at? Or what do you want to do? Totally terrify you. And that's what happens when you live with a mask on for 40 or 50 years. It's like trying to be friends with some, a poster on your wall. You can learn something about it, but, but you can't get to know and really be intimate with simply an image. And so the cross... Before it does anything, it announces what a wreck you are. It it, it announces how desperately you are in need and how crooked you are. Your, Your guilt runs so deep that the Son of God had to die for you. Maybe you don't have a sense of how crooked you are or how much in need you are. You can look at the price of your redemption to get a sense of the depth of your need. What did it cost to set you free and extend forgiveness to you before the living God? It took the blood of God. If you want freedom, you have to see the cross of Christ as a critique before anything else. This is God helping you see how bad you are. This is what your badness cost. It cost God his only son. At the cross, you are exposed All of these things you try to hide to put forth a good image. So listen, if you come to this church, or if this is your first Sunday, let's set expectations. The pastors and the people who work here, at least, have the assumption that if you're here, that that you are a mess, and you're not so good at life, because our contention is really nobody is. We're all a band of needy, broken people, desperate for help, who are Twisted, we do the things we don't want to do and we don't do the things that we want to do. So when people come in here and they're sinning, we're like, well, yeah, this is the club for sinners, right? Like this is the place where the prerequisite to come to Jesus is to be broken. So if you're here and you're interested in Jesus, our assumption is that you are broken. But, but so listen, there's some grace in the exposure here because if you've already been exposed that means you don't have to hide anymore. That, that, that means you can let whatever that is out. And if you have no idea who you are, that's okay. You can learn to figure that out here. I, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who was hiding things for years and years and years. And I remember he said to me one time, he said, you know, the freest night of my life was my first night in prison because I didn't have to hide anymore. I had been exposed. I, I had... I'd, this thing I was trying to protect, had been set out there. And the cross has done that for all of us. You may think you have the people around you fooled, but the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, sees you and has exposed you. You don't have to hide because the cross announces that which you've been trying to cover. From there, though, we have to see how the cross has created room for us. There there is ample room at the foot of the cross for all of life's complications and messiness, for all of your own internal contradictions and and inconsistencies. And we see this displayed over and over in the life of Jesus. So in the Gospels, you'll see that there's, there's room for the ingratitude of nine lepers and the appreciation of only one. There's room for the full stomachs of 5,000 people and the unbelief of the apostles. There's room for the complaints of Martha and the devotion of Mary. There's room for the extravagance of Mary Magdalene and the stinginess of Judas. There's room for the excitement of Palm Sunday spectators and the venomous cries of the Good Friday crowd. There's room for bloodthirsty Herod and curious worshiping wise men. If you have a sense of your own internal contradictions of life's complications and the competing voices. Jesus' invitation to you is the same as it's always been to everyone else. Into those inconsistencies and hypocrisies, he says, come to me. There's room for you here. Because I guess at the end of the day, the cross, yes, it exposes you, and it says there's room for you here. And if you come to him there, it will make you something new. If you know that you need Jesus, my encouragement to you is come to Him. Because if you come to Him, the cross will it will stop being such an offense to you. You can tell when someone's wrestling with their faith because the idea that God had to die for them, they'll buck up and they'll, they'll fight against that. They'll, it won't make any sense. It'll seem confusing. But as you come to Jesus and, and you see Him, You'll no longer feel so much exposed there. You'll feel safe there. You'll see that, yes, God saw you. Yes, the price was high, but he paid it out of love. You'll you'll look to the cross and see how desperate you are for help, absolutely. But if you look further still, you'll see the cross as evidence of how much God loves you. And at that cross, your reasons for hiding become reasons for boasting, these things that the world tells you are shameful and you hide, you'll be able to say, did you know I used to be this? Did you know I used to do this? Did you know this happened to me? Do you know this was done to me? But God, all of life's sufferings and losses become the grounds by which new life springs forth. Paul puts it this way. He says, what counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. What a word of peace that is. What counts isn't all of your religious commitments, maybe you're plowing right into New Year and you're ready for this long list of all the ways you're going to do better this year, but in the back of mind, you know it won't last till February, right? Or like, he's saying what counts before God, his opinion of you, you're standing with him, isn't your religious performance. It's not how good you're doing in life. It's whether or not you have been made a new creation. At the cross your guilt is forgiven. He's seen all you will ever do, and he declares it's finished. Which, you know, there's a lot of folks in this church that will say things like, I've been a Christian my whole life. I don't remember a time I got saved when I was four at my first summer camp revival, and I've just always been a Christian. Which one of the things that means is the dumbest things you've done in your life happened after you were a Christian. Like, if you If you come to faith early enough, that will mean your biggest sins, your biggest mistakes, the worst things that you have done happened after you became a Christian, which is a real problem if the message we've heard is like, come to Jesus and live your best life now and everything will get better. Like some of you didn't learn to struggle with depression until your mid-30s, right? And you'd been a Christian for 20 years. We can't make the mistake of thinking that the cross is this line where where God's like, I forgive all the stuff you did before that. Now go get after it, son. Like at the cross, Jesus saw all that we would do, your whole life. You know, you can't catch God by surprise. There's nothing you've ever done that God looked over at the Spirit and said, Did you know she was going to do that? You know, He's never been caught off guard. Jesus looks at all of that and says, it's forgiven and it's finished. At the cross, your guilt is forgiven. Your shame is healed. He's seen all you are and says, that is enough for me. I love you and I desire you. Your fears are quieted. If, listen, if, you, if God graciously sacrificed his son for you, would you think he will all of a sudden get stingy because you got laid off? Because you're 40 and you're not sure what's going on with your life or you know, we live with this mentality that's like, yeah, God would give me the most precious thing in the universe, but he's really going to hold back on everything else. If God gave his own son for you, how will he not richly give us all things? You don't have to hide. You don't have to play by the world's rules. Reactivity comes from the wounded soul living in response to the world. But we who are set free boast in the cross of Christ, which means we live in response to God. The life of freedom is not determined by what you say you'll do. It's not determined by what other people have said or done to you. It's not even so much determined by what Jesus tells you to do. The life of freedom is determined, is guaranteed by what Jesus has done for you. which means our faith must always stay bloody. And it's an unpopular idea right now. There's many voices in our world that want a sanitized, safer version of Christianity. Um, I think maybe our church just takes the Bible too seriously for that. I I don't know. You look at the biographies of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're centered on the the death and resurrection of Jesus. You, you, You can't, The whole structure of the books is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You you go to the book of Acts, the message from day one post-resurrection of the apostles centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church gathered for 2,000 years, our worship gatherings have centered around the death And resurrection of Jesus. All these movements that we put on the screen, those reflect the movements of the gospel. And our service is centered around it. Climax is on the celebration of communion. That's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So a faith that tries to move on from the blood of Jesus is a faith that has left Jesus. A Christianity that tries to get clever or cute or unique or have some intense new spin on something and abandons the blood of Jesus, it might be something interesting, but it's not Christianity anymore. There is no Christianity without the blood of Jesus. So we must be a people who are continually returning to the cross, an empty tomb, because there we are reminded that we're new creations, that we're free, that we don't have to hide. Paul has warned us of this next reality, but I I want us to hold tightly on to it. So yes, we keep our faith bloody. We don't move beyond the blood of Jesus. And we have to realize that this freedom he's given to us must be defended because many voices will tempt us away from freedom. Many wounds will tempt you to reactivity. And please don't hear me saying that whatever the wounds are in you are not real. Or what happened shouldn't have mattered. Or if you find yourself saying, well, I was only 16. I should just move on by now. Don't do that to yourself. The wounds are real. Like, you may remember the story when the disciples come to Jesus and they're worried. And Jesus doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, stop worrying, you theological dimwits or something like that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. And notice he doesn't say, because there's nothing to worry about. He doesn't say that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Look at the birds. Can you imagine what a disappointing answer that would be? You know, like you just got a refill on your anxiety medication and you're freaking out about life and you get to talk to Jesus and you're like, I'm so stressed out, Jesus. And he's like, let's go look at birds. (laughs) He says, look at the birds and look at the flowers. They have plenty of food and plenty of clothing. I take care of them. Do you have any idea how much more I love you? We we defend freedom in our lives by allowing God's voice to be loudest in our lives. We fight to hear that voice that says, I love you so much more than the flowers. I love you so much more the birds. Sometimes this is, it's just very complicated, and the best we can do is listen and obey. We listen to what he says, and we do what he says. In the life of freedom, it'll be terribly disorienting at times. Because, I mean, earlier in Galatians, he said the freest way to live is to love and to serve. But if you're not loving people and you're not serving people, you're probably loving yourself and serving yourself, which you can go try that if you want, but the Bible says that will lead to slavery. If you want to save your life, well, you should lay it down and give it away. The freest way to live is vulnerability, leading with weakness. Because when we are weak, he is strong. How good are you at vulnerability, at weakness? I know it's foreign, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. Stressed about your finances. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. Well, upside-down kingdom of Jesus. If you want freedom, listen and obey. It won't make sense all the time. It won't feel natural all the time. But if we aren't actively rooting out the wounds in our life and learning to bring the voice of Jesus into those situations, we will live enslaved and reactive the rest of our lives. Now, If what I've said is true, so God has seen everything that you're trying to hide. You are more exposed than you realize. He's seen that. He's paid the price you owe for that. He's wiped you clean, and he's brought you into his family. He's filled you with his spirit. If that is true, the Christian above all people are a people of unshakable hope and endless founts of courage. There is nothing that we cannot face, no accusation we cannot endure that can separate us from the love of God. There's no sin that can condemn us now. There is no wound that cannot be healed. There is no trial that we cannot endure. And so we don't, we don't just come to communion to like weep and mourn over what we've done. We've also celebrate our freedom. Maybe you have no idea how to party, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to do our annual Epiphany Feast, where we do our best. It's kind of hard to throw a party for five or 600 people, but come to that. There's an insert in your bulletin, and learn what it means to celebrate this together. But we are a people who, if these promises are true, we are unstoppable and unshakable. Maybe you should go read a history book on what Christians have pulled off in the last 2,000 years, you know, things like public education. What? Like, the, uh, the effects of Christians on human history are, it's impossible to overstate them, if you ask me. Uh, the cultural change that we've been able to bring about. Why? Because the same spirit that hovers over the waters of creation now lives inside of every Christian. And this is especially powerful for us when we come to Christmas and are reminded of the name of Jesus. The prophet said he would be called Emmanuel, Emmanuel which doesn't mean God over us or God angry with us or God opposed to us. It means God with us. So we come to Christmas to remember this baby who is gentle and kind, who calls us in, and the man who invites us to walk with him, who set us free. Or as the scriptures will say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so my my final encouragement to us as a church, if anyone gives you a message other than the one that you've received, that all you need is Jesus, that what he's done for you is enough. Let that person be cursed. Stop letting them bother you. Stop entertaining those frivolous conversations. What God has given to you cost him his own son. Let's not be a people who relinquish it lightly. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you and encourage your spirits that you are free. This has been the book of Galatians. And it's been a gift to us. And it's so fitting at Christmas. And I, Bobby pointed this out to me. I, I've never noticed this before. We were talking earlier in the week. And he said, you know, we hold up the bread. And we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. But he's like, have you ever noticed the size of the bread? That it's just about the size of a little baby? And So you think about this gift that God has given to us. And we can, you know, you can, you can just imagine holding this little baby. And at at Christmas, we come to remember that he's come, that he didn't come as a warrior or a conqueror, but he came as a little baby. But our gatherings, our faith, the scriptures compel us to remember that this little baby would become a man and that his body would be broken for you. So if you come this morning and you don't know if God loves you, if you don't know if he's for you, if you don't know if what you've done has gone too far, come to the broken body of Christ and know there's room for you. He loves you. Forgiveness is yours. Those wounds that you're holding on to, they can be healed. Freedom can come through the cross of Christ. After the meal, Jesus held up a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this. And remember what I've done for you. This is what keeps you safe with God. This is the promise that nothing we can do can separate us from the love of God because the blood of Jesus was shed for us. And those whom God has set free are free indeed. How do I know you're free? Because the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. Our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we'll have gluten-free elements up here by the tree. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's celebrate together. Let's pray.